Just surrender all to the Lord. Just take whatever you've got on your heart and on your mind this morning. Turn it over to Him. And it's then when you receive that power, when you feel that sacred flame. And uh, you have to surrender it all. So let's just give it to Him this morning. There's a, a lot of families out this morning. A big camping trip going on for one. I, might, I have to mention that. A lot of families going. I went and I camped Wednesday night with Daniel and then Thursday night with Morgan and it was just a wonderful time of fellowship. So let's be in prayer for the families that are still out and um, quite a few that are out this morning uh, doing that. Let's um, maybe put it in B flat. And um, kind of warm up a little bit with some with some singing. I want to do a tune called "Come and Dine." And so, if you would, let's stand back up and um, kind of move around a little bit and look over, wave at your neighbor. I'm not want to say shake people's hands or cross the aisles, but just give a little bit of a wave there. And uh, let's do "Come and Dine." Well, Jesus has a table spread where the saints of God are fed. He invites his chosen people come and die. Let us eat a feast and supplies.
nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the blood that makes me white as snow. No other bound I know. Nothing but the
Brother Drum, get ready to come and bring us to the Lord in prayer. Uh, we have, as I mentioned, a few out uh, on the camping trip. Also, we'd like to remember uh, Sister Shirley. And uh, remember Sister Amber as well as she helps with her. Sister Carol, keep her in our prayers. Um, Brother Brian McCall in Indiana has also requested prayer. Uh, Keith and Sarah uh, have requested prayer. They're out sick this morning. Brother Ben McCafferty. Let's remember Steve and um, Sarah in Virginia. And the Paschals are out for work. And i uh, got a special prayer request here for Mike. Um, all his ways, mother. She's having surgery. So let's be sure to remember her in prayer. Um, and then Brother Joel has an unspoken prayer request. So let's, uh, let's remember these as, we, as Brother Jim comes forward to take us to the Lord. Good morning. It's good to be back. Let us pray. Our glorious and precious Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord, you see us, you know what we're going through, and you see how much we love you. We honor you. Lord, you're our all in all. We're so thankful that you've called us here in this end time. Lord, that we got someone that we can give ourselves to, give our burdens, give all of our, everything that's going on in our lives, Lord. Lord, we know that you're there and we can call on you. Lord, we heard the petitions, Lord, now that's brought before the church. And Lord, we, we want you to be within each and every one. Lord, you see the bride. You see the needs. And, Lord, we know that you'll meet those needs. Pray, Lord, that you bless in the service today. Lord, anoint the speaker's mouth, Lord, that he might say what you'd have us to say and have us to hear, Lord. Lord, anoint our ears. We ask you, Lord, just to take charge of the service and let us enter into the worship, Lord understanding that we do need to surrender all to you. We ask all this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. We do have two specials this morning. And uh, Sister Kristen, come on up. And uh, we're also going to request Sister Rebecca sing a song for us this morning after Sister Kristen gets down. Bless the Lord, O my soul.
of this life I have already come and he keeps on giving the grace and strength to just keep pressing on he's given a promise and I am gonna stand on every word his holy word has said and holding his hand I'll never fear whatever lies ahead I'm gonna make it He's already said that I would and I'll
I'm going to make it. Can you just say to yourselves, I'm going to make it? Let's just say it. I'm going to make it. Can we rest on that promise? Amen. Come on up, Sister Rebecca. He walks beside me. And uh, don't we have a Savior who walks beside us. And you know what? That's just during the times that He's not carrying me in His arms. <laughs> Amen. All right. God bless you.
That's beautiful. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. It's one of the greatest lines I can think of in many songs. He knew me, yet he loved me. When he was on the cross, he had that gaze that pierced the crust of humanness and saw that gleam of the eternal soul within. Amen. As we change over our order of service, let's just uh, stand back to our feet. Light of the world, you step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see you be that Let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, as we savor this moment, Lord, in your presence today, Lord, even if nothing else was done or said, we can say truly from our hearts it's been good for us to be in the house of the Lord. And Father, we know that you delight in the praises of your people. We know you delight in the gatherings of your people. For you said, Lord, wherever just two or three even would be gathered, then there you would be in our midst. And so today, in the name of Jesus Christ, we just bind our faith together now, believing that you are near. And Lord, that you will just charge our hearts, Lord, and challenge us, I pray, in the the continuance of your word. And Father, may you just have complete control among us. Lord, there are many who are sick, and there are many who are needy, many, Lord, who are reaching out to you now and looking for relief of symptoms, they're looking for healing, they're looking for answers. And Father, I just pray that you would just minister to each and every one. Father, we pray for those who are not here today, and we also ask your special blessing on those that are. And Lord, may you just have complete control now as we give you this time. And I give you myself, and I give you my mouth, my mind, Lord, everything that I have, I just surrender to you. And just pray that you would take this vessel and use it, Lord, like a microphone that the people may hear from you. We just pray, Lord, and give thanks for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated this morning. Thank you, musicians, and thank you all for uh, coming and being here today. wasn't really sure who was going to be here today, but uh, we are glad for all of you. So uh, I, I don't want to uh, uh, take much time and, and uh, not capitalize on the uh, atmosphere that we have, but let me just make a couple of uh, brief announcements here uh, this morning. Brother Joe Pascal's birthday is today, and Brother Joe was planning to be with us and then uh, had to uh, leave. He's on call all the time, and so it's very unpredictable for him to be able to uh, nail things down, but uh, today's his birthday, and we wish him all the very best. September 29th is Sister Frida's birthday. Sorry, Sister Frida, but we appreciate you very much. And may your best year be ahead of you. And may the Lord bless you. And we thank you for all your labors. October 1st is Sister Caitlin's birthday. God bless you, Sister Caitlin. We appreciate you very much. October 2nd is Brother David Cockman's birthday. Uh, somewhere up on some mountain somewhere. And uh, may God bless you, Brother David. Uh, October 3rd is Sister Katie Franklin's birthday. <clears throat> They're probably listening today from Arizona. And that's also Sophie Cockman's birthday as well, up with her fathers on some mountain somewhere. Uh, we wish them happy birthday today. Uh, we have uh, got our copies of the, the newsletter uh, that uh, came, and I'll have a few in the lobby out there. Uh, most of these, uh, this is mostly uh, pictures and a report on things that uh, we've done with vision books and so forth. And uh, it's only brief, but uh, it has some pictures in here. Most of these pictures you've seen before. You're certainly welcome to take a copy of the uh, newsletter. We're going to be mailing that out. Uh, that'll go all over the world, and so we're... Uh, just excited about that. That's being prepared now to go. Um, we want to remember uh, Brother Ron Spencer. He's still going through some testing, uh, and they're um, just uh, uh, extensive testing that they're doing there. And so we just would uh, ask you to just continue to rem- remember him. I, I put his name on the on the prayer request all the time. I communicate with Brother Ron every single day. 
And I just, uh, I just would ask you just, uh, I, don't want, I don't want to make it common by making it frequent. But he really does need a, um, a continuous blessing of the presence of God and, and a healing touch. And so we just want to continue to remember him in prayer. Uh, I told him he's like a cat. You know, he seems to have about nine lives. Uh, and he's just, he's just uh, a remarkably determined uh, brother, and, and we just want to continue to remember him in prayer. Brother Tim Pruitt's church is still closed. Uh, brother Aaron Oglesby, who is Brother Tim's son-in-law, was hospitalized. Uh, I haven't heard yet today whether he's out or not, but uh, he was hospitalized because of uh, conditions and a pre-existing condition that made it difficult for him to breathe. And uh, he's just a young man, but he's, uh, uh, Lord willing, we're going to pray him out of the hospital and, and uh, get him back home again with his family. Brother Bill, I had you written down here today. Good to have you with us. I know it's been a rough week for you, but uh, good to have you with us today. And uh, also as well, um, we want to remember um, all of the folks that are not here. And uh, it's already been mentioned that we we don't have everybody full strength, but we're... I'm glad that you're here. Now, I want to mention this. We, we have uh, failed, just failed to do this, and that's partly just because of, of me uh, and not, uh, not jumping in and doing it. And that is that uh, Brother David here has acted in the position of a deacon for a long time, and lo and behold, we've never voted on him. And uh, so we want to do that, not this week, uh, because we have about half the church out, and next week Brother David's working. So we'll, we'll schedule it for the following week after, so you need to remind me. Uh, that we we need to do that. We uh, I just want to say that, and I, again, I don't want to make this common by saying it, but we have a wonderful team of trustees and deacons who work behind the scenes. They've worked uh, very tirelessly over the, the last uh, well, in 2020, and uh, I, I just I, I find it a great privilege to be able to work with a team of men so qualified and so dedicated as they are. And I, I don't say that lightly at all. I really do appreciate it. And they're, they're, they work in the background. You, you, you know, they are, are just very uh, good at what they do. And uh, we, because we have uh, such funny schedules and because we have enough people and coming and going and visitors and we're on this road out here, uh, it's good for us to have the kinds of uh, deacons that we have who are uh, in touch with what's going on around us here. So we appreciate Brother David's work not only here, but also um, up in Virginia as well. And he's a great, great help to me and a great blessing to our family, and we appreciate that very much. Did I say something wrong? And so I want to add this little part, too, that uh, uh, last year, I think it was last year, I'd mentioned when we were talking about Brother Mark, and, uh, and this is not only true of Brother Mark, but there's several other people here that could fill multiple roles and would be good at all of them. Uh, we just have enough men that uh, are capable that we're able to, you know, spread things around it. I'd mentioned that if we needed another deacon, we could always call on Brother Mark, and we can, and we would, uh, because he's, he's got experience at that, and he and Sister Jackie are very capable in that kind of a role. But Mark's a trustee, and we like Mark as a trustee and helping Brother Ben and his group there. So I, I mentioned this, that it's not in any uh, any lacking on Brother Mark's part that we would not have him as a deacon also. When we've got uh, good men also who can fill the role of a deacon, then we'll let Brother Mark be a trustee. 
all right, because he's an excellent trustee, and we're going to let him do that. But um, we, like I say, uh, it, it's a, just a real compliment to these brothers as to how well they work together and how well they communicate together, and their wives when they're called upon, and, and we just appreciate all of them very much, and uh, they're to be commended. And we don't commend them, I think, regularly or often enough. So it's, it's certainly appreciated. But uh, not next Sunday, but the following Sunday when Brother David's here, we'll take a vote. And uh, I figure if somebody objected to you being a deacon, they would have said something by now. As you've, you've been a deacon, acting as a deacon for a long time. So uh, we appreciate uh, Brother David and his work. Uh, so let's just jump in this morning here. Now, I want to, uh, before we do this and before we read the word, I, I just... I have to show you this. I'm going to take you to Aringa. And Aringa is in central Tanzania. There's only a little small group there. And uh, there's a, really about 10 or 11 people who are in the church. And they have a pastor who comes out of Arusha every Sunday and takes the bus down and ministers to the people there. And that's part of the use of the funds that we send for missionaries every every month. And so... Uh, uh, the, the pastor brother goes down and helps these people here. And this is a photograph of where they worship. This is the church sign uh, right here. And uh, this is a, a house that they rented in a, in a row of houses there. And this is a real typical street. I, li- I like this picture because it's just so uh, typical. This is the, uh, the underground sewage system, which is above the ground. And uh, this is just a real typical uh, small town uh, called Iringa, and it's a, a neat place, and this is just a shot inside there. Now, Brother Elias went down there and brought down some Bibles for them and some books and held a kind of a little revival down there, and there were people from neighboring communities who came, so you're not going to see a picture of just the original church, but they had a, a group of visitors who showed up, and then they had enough ministers that they had a little ministers meeting there, and it was just a real blessed time that they had. This is Brother Isaac over here, and, and Brother Isaac is the brother who uh, travels out of Arusha, is Brother Elias, and uh, Brother Isaac pastors down there and travels down and uh, does a great work with them. And then there's a shot of a couple there who are receiving new Bibles, and uh, they had enough ministers, and this is the picture of the ministers that they had a little ministers meeting, and uh, they were excited about that. And so all the new converts there and all the new believers got their own Bible, and they're pretty happy and excited about that. Uh, but uh, when, you, uh, when you get a group of people like this from this part of Africa together and they start to sing, uh, it's, it's always a blessing. So we're not sure whether we can do this or not. Uh, let's see if we can crank this up here. just recorded on somebody's phone there. I wish we're going to have to just get a real recording, good recording of that. 
So this is the group there after they met and uh, all the people who were there for that little particular revival. And uh, they all had their picture made and they sent their greetings to us. So Brother Elias accompanied this little report with a request. And uh, they'd been turned out of the house that they had for their church. Uh, the landlord uh, put them out, and so they, now they have nowhere to go. This little group has nowhere to go. So he wrote me this letter. He says, we have one church here in the Oringa region in the rural area, and this church was using somebody's house for worship, and we are now evicted from the house. No way to get a house even for hiring. So no matter how much money they had, they couldn't rent a house. He said, I am requesting you to allow me to help them with 500 U.S. dollars. And with that amount, they can buy an acre of land. Not bad. It is a group of ten believers, and the church is growing, but they have nowhere to go. And I said, of course. So my part's left out of this conversation. I said, of course. Let's, let's do that. Let's buy an acre of land, and let's uh, uh, encourage them to go ahead with plans for building a, an assembly there. And he said, I'll try to reduce the cost of missionary work next month in order to get that amount of money without jeopardizing the work. Thank you. So he was going to take the 500 from the amount that we give every month to the missionaries and uh, just kind of continue the missionary work, but for one month take that out. And I told him, I said, no, no, no. I said, if you eat, we can buy an acre of land in Tanzania for $500, buy the acre of land, and uh, he, we, we uh, established a, an account over there so he can write the check and he can uh, do that from our assembly here. So it's just an extension of our assembly's funds. And so they're able to, to buy the piece of land and put a building on it and, and, uh, and be able to have a place to worship. And I thought, man, that would be just so nice to, to do that. And I said, on a footnote to all of this, I said, you let us know when the building is built. And when you decide to dedicate it, we're all going to come over. <laughs> and we'd like to be there for the dedication. How many would like to go to? i tell you what, you would enjoy that. You would enjoy that. They still ask when, when these brothers are coming back. They love to hear when Brother John's going to come and Matt's going to come and Mark and uh, just different ones, you know, that would love to come. So I'll tell you what, that would be, that'd be really great. And I told Elias, I said, I would love to go and visit their church and just be there, you know. And he said, they would be honored to have you, have you, uh, all, all the people from the assembly. So I thought, hey, let's do it. <clears throat> let's take our Bibles. And if you don't mind, we'll stand as we read this morning. Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel now if you've read your Bible through, and I hope you have or are doing it, you come across little passages like this and there is this tedious, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but a very exacting and tedious measurement of the, of the temple that's being described here in Exodus chapter 43. And I just want to read one verse uh, as we begin this morning. Verse 12. This and all the rules, all the measurements, all the guidelines that are given in the building of the house of God 
Ezekiel concludes this and says in verse 12, this is the law of the house. Upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof, round about, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. May the Lord add his blessing. You may be seated. Thank you. Now, this is one of those days where I find myself, uh, in a sense, I find myself kicking myself because I labored all this week in trying to just get my thoughts centered and just to make sure that what we were going to do today was, was pleasing to him. And, of course, that's always, the, that's always the goal. That's the primary goal. And if we don't pay attention to that, we've really missed the whole, the whole point. And uh, thinking about this uh, as, I, as I began to ponder and just allow uh, things to grow, like Brother Branham said you should, he said it's, it's almost like going two times two times two times two times two, and it just exponentially grows in your heart. Then I also had conflicting thoughts that these people are going to run me off here eventually if I talk about unusual things again. Why don't I minister just like other normal ministers? And I, I just labored right up to this morning. I just labored with that whole idea. And then I, I came outside the door this morning where John was leading the singing, and I appreciated the singing and the specials. Uh, and it was just such a, a blessing and a nice atmosphere. I wanted to come in that atmosphere, so I circled around. I was shocked that there was cars in the parking lot, and I appreciate you coming. Always good to see cars in the parking lot. And came in the back and just enjoyed the service and all the things that were said and even the little comments that are made, and it's a wonderful thing to, uh, to hear little confirmations about things. In other words, you're, you're getting this little nudge from the Holy Spirit that you're moving in the right direction. So I'm going to ask you to bear with me today because I knew we would have... Um, you know, less a, a lesser number of folks here today than normal. And uh, that is, in a sense, a good thing for you because uh, I'm going to give you what I would normally give a big crowd. And so there's more proportionally for you today. But that also puts a measure of responsibility on your shoulders as well because you've got to make up the difference for the people who are not here. Okay, so your response and your pulling on the gift and your amens and all, that, all those kinds of things are important uh, to the minister for sure. You, you may not think so, but when I'm preaching from my house, which I don't like to do, but I'm glad to be able to do it uh, in the times that we live in, uh, those little amens that come on the phone, they really do help. They're, they're a, a consolation that I know that there's somebody out there. Because over the last year, I've really learned how to preach to bookshelves well. Every time I preach, it seems like I'm in front of a bookshelf. And so it's really nice to have uh, the comments and the feedback from the people who are listening. But I, I just want to say this, that, you know, we live in an unusual time. And we live, uh, I don't need to uh, underscore that to anybody. And we live in a, uh, not only this virus uh, section that we have here, this virus time, but we live in a, a time, I guess, when there's been no, absolutely no other age or no other uh, time period over the last 2,000 years where uh, families and, and marriage and things that we kind of took for granted for so long uh, are under such attack. And I have spent over my years, I've spent a lot of, a lot of years and a lot of sermons on uh, this whole subject of family and, and, and how important it is not only to God, but how important it should be for all of us as well. 
And so I just wanted to deal with an aspect of that today because it's something that I, uh, that I uh, have been studying in a, in a different way. And uh, I, I just wanted to share some things with you. Now, very often, my wife and I, if we have an opportunity, uh, we will escape down to uh, Williamsburg in Virginia. And uh, Williamsburg, of course, is where it all began. It's where it used to be at one point the capital of the United States, and it was the capital of Virginia for a while, and it's where the uh, William and Henry University is, and a lot of our presidents were educated there. It's a fascinating place. It's in a little triangle uh, of uh, Virginia where Jamestown and Yorktown and, and uh, Williamsburg are. And if you ever ever have a chance to go visit there, and we did one time as a church, we brought a group up there. Uh, it's just a really interesting place. And one year for, my, for her birthday, my wife wanted, we asked her what would she like to do for her birthday. And she wanted to go to uh, Williamstown, and we went there, and Williamsburg, and we went there. And it was, um, it's always been a special place for us. And people dress up as reenactors there. And uh, they, uh, you know, when you go inside the rifle maker shop, for instance, or the printing shop or the dress shop or whatever else, they're dressed in their costumes and they, they kind of go back, excuse me, back in time. And so when you pull out your cell phone to take a picture, they're, they're very curious. What is this contraption that you have? And they, uh, they don't know anything about that or they, they think we're dressed funny. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a, certainly a fun time. Lots of people will say, you hear the expression all the time, man, I wish I lived back in that time. Life was seemed to be more, so much more simple. Wouldn't it be nice to live back in that time? And I would just like to say this to you, that uh, in some ways I would agree that it would be nice to live back in times like that, colonial days and uh, times when uh, America was still uh, fighting wars for its independence. But I will say this, that if you were a woman back there in that particular time, it would be quite different for you than what it is today. The role of a woman back then, the role of a housewife, was certainly different than the role of most housewives today, at least in some sense. So bear with me today as we describe this just for a little bit. Typical woman in colonial America was expected to run a household and to attend to domestic duties such as, and not limited to, spinning, sewing, preserving food, animal husbandry, cooking, cleaning, and raising children. Families tended to be large, and childbearing could be dangerous prior to advancements in, child, in childbearing and health care, in advancements in medicine and health care. A responsible housewife was supposed to be resourceful with her family's budget. Although it was interesting that a woman back then was not permitted to vote, she was not permitted to retain anything she brought into the marriage. So, for instance, she, if she had possessions that she brought to the marriage, they were no longer hers. They became the property of her husband once she was married. Uh, she was considered to have, back then, a very weak brain. Back then, that's what the prevailing feeling was, is that a woman had a very weak brain, and so she was not capable of rational thought. And she was considered, by the law, non-campus Inventus, 
meaning, and that was a legal term back then, it meant that women, children, and idiots were considered incapable of making moral decisions. I'm just telling you what it was like in colonial days for a woman. A woman back then, she could not testify in court, she could not be sued, she could not have possessions, and her destiny was entirely centered around pleasing her husband. That's what she had to do, including all the duties and more that were uh, listed here. Home manufactured goods such as dairy products and textiles were usually created by women, while the woman's husband was the owner of the goods and received whatever money they were sold for because a woman could not have possessions back in that day. So if she had dairy goats, for instance, and she made soap uh, from goat's milk, all the revenue from the sale of the goat's milk and the soap would have went to her husband because he owned all the possessions that she ever had. Now, let me ask again, how many of you would like to say, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live back in those times? She had, really, and some of you women are looking at me saying, really? (coughs) So, back in that day, there were uh, slaves and uh, there were... Uh, people who were even uh, like ex-convicts who were on the street, who were treated far better or had more liberties and had more, uh, more opportunity uh, than women did back in that day. And the only uh, mark of adulthood and the only mark of maturity that a woman had back then uh, was that uh, she was married and had children. That was kind of her passage into adulthood. Uh, for a young man, if he was, uh, you know, for instance, if, if he graduated from school or if he joined the army or if he gained a rank or if he got married and had a family, all of those would be rites of passage for a young man, much like getting your license today or voting for the first time. Those are all rites of passage today. The only rite of passage, the only symbol of maturity or adulthood for a woman back then was that uh, she, she was able to have children and be married, and that was the only, uh, the only rite of passage, if you like. That was the only uh, mark of adulthood for a woman uh, back in that day. So, <clears throat> having said all of that, there was a, uh, a way of thinking in society that kept things that way, that men ruled and men uh, decided on the destiny of the, of the nation. Uh, they were the ones who fought in wars, and they celebrated the victories that they had. As a matter of fact, one of the things that uh, you, you can often see if you go back and look at pictures of that era, uh, one of the things that was very interesting is that uh, if a man was a gunner, uh, he was one who fired the cannon back in, in the, the uh, wars for uh, liberation back then, uh, they would sometimes summon their wives to come from their household and load the gunpowder and cannonballs in the end of the cannon because that was something that a man didn't always want to have to do and he was interested in making sure the cannon was aimed right and uh, making sure there was enough ammunition and so forth. But the woman had the job of stuffing the gunpowder down there and putting the cannonball in and she'd stand by the end of the gun when it fired off and uh, hopefully she had a little bit of hearing uh, when the whole battle was over. Now, it's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting concept, really, uh, of how that uh, 
the situation was or uh, family life was back in that particular uh, era, back in that particular time. But there was one, uh, one uh, I guess, a complementary thing that we could say historically uh, towards women back in that day, and that her singular, uh, singular focus was, or the thing that she was really uh, requested to do back in that day, besides all the menial uh, house chores that she had to do, was that she was to raise sons who would be literally true patriots. And her job was to instill in her sons this dedication towards uh, going into battle and standing for the flag and uh, all of the other things that were associated with, uh, you know, being a, a real uh, a civic model, if you like. So her, her, her job, in a sense, was this civic role that was given to mothers who were to instill in their uh, sons especially a sense of patriotism. And they were to be uh, teaching their sons that, uh, you know what, it is a good thing to live for God and it's a good thing for you to die for your country. It's a good thing for you to be brave enough to get out there on the front lines and fight for the flag and the freedoms that we enjoy. And so the one thing that a woman had was to raise a son who was willing to be able to stand out there for the cause. To be able to stand out there and to be able to give his all, to give everything he had for the cause of America. That was one of the things that uh, women were encouraged to do. Now, Brother Branham says this, and as I uh, mentioned this quote to you many times before in versions of it, Brother Branham said the backbone of any nation is womanhood, he said, when it comes to morals. And you break motherhood and you broke the nation. So in this role of, of a woman back in, in the former days, and Brother Branham coming up in the rural parts of Kentucky there, there was a, uh, a kind of a, a moral fiber or moral character that uh, people had back in that day that they instilled or they gave to their children. David writes about it as well in Psalm 145. He says, One generation shall praise thy works to another and shall declare thy mighty acts. One of the roles of parents was to declare the, the, the works of God and the exploits of God to another generation. And they were, they were to make their children, in a sense, proud of the Christian heritage that they enjoyed. So, back in colonial days, mothers had the job of uh, instilling the, the glorious stories of, of uh, patriotism and valor and uh, all of the, the, the freedoms that were fought and won back in the day when uh, George Washington and, and uh, Madison and all those men were around back in that day and Patrick Henry. And they, mothers were, uh, were called upon to instill that in the hearts of their sons. And Brother Branham is telling us something that I think is very important and something that we want to just build on a little bit, and that is that uh, motherhood is important to God because God gives uh, children to mothers first. And their first job, if you like, the first thing that they are intended to do is to give them a sense of uh, the, the, the holiness and the greatness and the power of a living God. Isn't that right? They are... They are one who convey things to their children first and more effectively than just about anybody else. I mean, I'm, I'm in front of your kids and I'm around your kids all the time, but, uh, you know, they, they, they look at me a little bit differently than how they would look at their mom and dad. God puts them in a particular family because he wants your children to hear certain things from you on a day-to-day basis. He wants your children to learn and to grow and to hear it repeated over and over again. 
in one generation, praising that works to another generation, and that should go on continually. And so they will declare the mighty works of God and the mighty acts of God. So God made mothers and fathers in a unique way. And I've talked about fathers over the last little while here. And I thought this was interesting because I read, I found this, and I had it in my computer, and I'd forgotten I'd had it. Uh, and so I, I was looking for something else, and I came across this, and I thought I'd share it with you today, just in a, in a little bit of a lighter moment here. There was somebody who went in and interviewed a bunch of second graders and asked them questions about their their mother specifically, about their parents, but about their mother. And these are some of the responses that they gave, all right? So here's the first question. What ingredients are mothers made of? Remember now, these are all second grader answers. God makes mothers out of clouds and angel hair and everything nice in the world and one dab of mean. Why did God make mothers? To help us out when we were getting born. Third question, what kind of little girl was your mother? I don't know, because I wasn't there. But my guess would be pretty bossy, but they did say she used to be nice. Why did your mother marry your dad? Well, she got too old to do anything else with him. Who is the boss at your house? Mom is. She doesn't want to be, but she has to be because dad is such a goofball. What's the difference between moms and dads? Moms work at work and work at home. Dads just go to work at work. What does your mom do in her spare time? Mothers don't do spare time. What did it take, uh, what did it, what would it take to make your mom perfect? On the inside, she's already perfect. On the outside, some type of plastic surgery. <laughs> Guys, this is not where you laugh real loud, alright? If you could change one thing about your mom, what would it be? I would like her to get rid of those invisible eyes in the back of her head. Can't beat second graders. Launching from that, someone made a job description of what it would be like if you had to advertise to hire a mother. And I thought this was interesting. If you were going to advertise to hire a mother, and by the way, if you were going to pay a mother for the various jobs that she does in her life of multitasking, by today's standards, she would earn $162,000 a year. I'm just saying, brothers, that it would be the equivalent of a job that paid $162,000 a year, and all the moms said, it's about time somebody said this, right? Here's the job description. Long-term team player needed for challenging permanent work in an often chaotic environment. Candidates must possess excellent communication and organizational skills, be willing to work variable hours, including nights, weekends, and frequent 24-hour shifts. Some overnight travel is required, including trips to primitive camping sites on rainy weekends. Travel expenses are not reimbursed. The responsibilities are the rest of your life. Must be willing to be hated, at least temporarily, until someone needs $5.00. Must be willing to bite your tongue repeatedly. Must be willing to be indispensable one minute and an embarrassment the next. Must always hope for the best, but be prepared for the worst. Must assume complete accountability for the quality of the end product. Possibility for promotion? Virtually none. Your job is to remain in the same position for years without complaining, constantly retraining and updating your skills so that those in your charge can ultimately surpass you. Previous experience, none required. 
On-the-job training is offered on a continually exhausting basis. Wages and compensation, you pay them. Offering frequent raises and bonuses, a balloon payment is due when they turn 18, assuming that college will help them become financially independent, and when you die, you give them whatever's left. (laughs) The benefits, the last one. While no health or dental insurance, no pension, no tuition reimbursement, no paid holidays, and no stock options are offered, this job supplies limitless opportunities for personal growth and free hugs for life if you play your cards right. Now, let me just give you a little thought here. I want to drop in a little thought here, that one that I, I know you're familiar with. It, it's, it's nice in a light way to talk about the, the jobs and roles that parents have and the, and the responsibilities that they have, and we've talked about that a lot. But we know that as Brother Branham came along and looked, in, uh, looked at our society and he looked at the way things used to be and he described the way things used to be and how he was raised and so forth, and then he began to warn us about how things were changing. And he made statements like this. He said, through our, uh, through, though our nation continually wades in sin, he said, Billy Grahams, Oral Roberts, Jack Schulers, others go through the nation with great striking revivals. And sin is on the march. You can't tell them because the devil has taken the nation over. And it come to us a few years ago that he lived in Paris and the devil and his angels and they had World War I and Germany would have sunk this nation beneath the earth, he said, and we went over to help them. And as soon as it was over, it was back again, wine, women, big time. And he says, then Satan sent his patterns over here and stripped our women and brought disgrace to our nation though the pattern, through the patterns and the fashions. So all that Satan had accumulated, he took and packed, his, packed in his bags and came over to our uh, nation on the West Coast and set up shop there and all the patterns and fashions and all the ideas and so forth. And he just took his army and he landed in Hollywood. And many of you people wouldn't let your children go to picture shows and see such stuff. But he said, the devil is smart. And he brings it right in on television so you'd be sure to get it. You know what? He's still doing that, isn't he? Because he's pretty sure that everyone's going to get it today because everybody has a connection and they don't even need to have a television anymore to have a connection. And so everybody's got it. And that's what Brother Branham is actually telling us. He brings it right in on television so you'd be sure to get it. So whatever Hollywood and whatever the world is producing, the devil has just made it sure that you would get it. And you know what? He's still ensuring that you're going to get it. The system that we have and we enjoy in our phones here, and I use the word enjoy loosely, the system that we have is now in the process of being changed. And we're going to 5G, and everything's going to be changed again when we come to that. And all the phones and the updates and all the computer systems are all gearing towards changing to that. You know why? Not because, uh, not because the government is wanting to make sure that you have the right speed on your phone. That's not it. There's another power behind that that wants to make sure that you get everything that's being produced out there on your phone or on your system, whatever you have. Right? This is not, folks, this is not compassion. 
there are forces that exist in our world, which is just like it was in Sodom, where all the things that are sacred and, and holy and pure, all of those things are not the way that they, that they don't remain the way that they were, but that they change and they reflect the kingdom that this world is moving to. This world is moving towards another kingdom, and it's not the kingdom of heaven. Right? This world is not moving towards the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's not, be, not looking more like the kingdom of heaven all the time. It's looking less and less like the kingdom of heaven all the time. Right? This world is looking more like hell every day that we live in it. And the devil is making sure that you get it. He's making sure that you have access to it. He's making sure that your kids have access to it. And he's making sure that, uh, you know, kids are more secure in that cyber bubble that they live in, which is not real life at all. Now, I may sound old-fashioned, and you forgive me if I just blather for a minute here. Bear with me a little. But I will say this, that one of the things that I see as a great weakness when it comes to uh, young people having a phone, especially a phone too early, is that they don't develop the relationship skills that they're going to need later in life. Because you know what? You can treat everybody at arm's length when you have a phone and you, have, uh, you don't have to deal with them face to face. And you know, in reality, that's not how it really is. When your friend disagrees with you and they, they, you, you, know, you say something and they say something you don't like, you can immediately go and, I'm going to block them. I'm going to cut them off, right? So you don't have to try to work anything out. Nobody has to apologize. You don't have to sit down and go face to face with things anymore, right? You just block them. I'll give you a piece of advice. When you young people get older and you get married, don't try to block your wife. Or you'll get a block right in the head. That's not how it is in real life. But you can see how Satan is changing the parameters of how we deal with one another. Now, some of you young people are giving me that look right now, and I'm not going to point any elbows here. But you give me that look like, you know, why don't you just leave us alone? I mean, that's who we are. It's what we do. It's what the way of the way it's going to be. I'm just here to tell you this. And I told you I was blathering, and I told you I was old-fashioned. I will just say this, that even though everybody does it, and even though everybody has access to it, it does not mean that it matches the kingdom that we're supposed to be moving towards. Your job as a Christian today, <laughs> with all the information and all the, all the doctrine and all the teaching and all the Bible uh, expository that we have, all of that uh, we have is to make us better citizens of that kingdom and in this kingdom while we're here until we get to there. We are not called in this message just to kind of sit back and glide along with this world towards tribulation and just hope by God's grace that we get plucked out of here, uh, you know, and, and go to the wedding supper before it's all over. I think we are here to make a difference in our world. I think we are here to witness the truth that God does have another kingdom and we are representatives of that kingdom. And there is light and hope and truth and holiness that still exists in our world and it lives in me. And I'm here to tell you the good news of Jesus Christ. That's one of my roles in this life. How many would concur? That's one of our jobs, is to reflect the light of that kingdom. But remember now, the way Brother Branham describes this is that he took his army and he landed in Hollywood. In other words, there's, there's now an, a foreign army that's in our nation that is fighting against something that we held dear for a long, long time. Some of you older people that are here, if you're older than 50, you remember that, you know, things are today, not like today the way that they used to be 50 years ago, right? 
things are. Now, this is the time for you not to shake your head because then you're giving away your age. But I will just say this, that uh, it, 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 is, it has changed quite drastically and it's changed quite quickly. And Brother Bannon was acknowledging that for us back in the 50s here in the 60s and letting us know that there needs to be Hear me now, but there needs to be a people, just like mothers back in the day of pre-colonial times, there was, there was a, a, a responsibility given to mothers. Even if they couldn't own property and they could not be considered a person, they couldn't be, uh, they couldn't be uh, on a jury, they couldn't be sued because they were essentially considered uh, not a person back then. But they had this responsibility given to them where they had to instill in their sons a sense of patriotism because the country was worth living and dying for. And they had to instill that in their children. I'd like to take this a notch higher in the spiritual realm and say that even if the world thinks you're nothing, and even if you feel like, uh, you know, you're out of sync and out of step with the world, and, you know, you don't cut your hair, and we don't have tattoos, and we don't uh, do everything for entertainment like the world does out here, and the world may look at you as nothing, and Satan may beat you down in every way, I still say this, that we as parents and grandparents have a responsibility to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, because that's what the Scripture challenges us to do. That's what the Bible commands us to do. And to be able to take responsibility for who we are and how we live, and to be able to employ, to be a a hearer and a doer of the Word, to take the Word and apply it in our hearts and in our lives, because that's what the Word of God tells us to do. Brother Branham says, again, we become so conscious of looking at one another like this. But there's an unseen world, and it's greater than anything that you see. It's greater than anything that you see in the natural. And he said, and here's Christ. And in this world, in this building, he said, there are evil spirits, and there's war, and Christians anointed, and the angels of God encamped around about them, trying to energize them with faith. Trying to energize them with faith. And so therefore, it's, it's a very, to me, it's a very important thing uh, that we recognize that uh, we, we, can, we can easily get caught up in just the things we see. We can get caught up in how everyone looks and how we should look. And we can get caught up in all the latest, uh, you know, uh, 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 the, the attractions that this world offers. And they're, they're, they're constant. They're constantly coming and constantly new, constantly changing. But Brother Branham's just alerting us to the fact that there's a more real and a more powerful world just behind the veil of this world. And he said that world exists to influence you one way or the other, to try to take away your joy, to try to take away your strength, to try to take away your peace, and to try to distract you and cause you to be out of sync with God. That's what that one side does. And the other side is here to energize us with faith, And allow us to be able to hear the right thing so that we will stand for the right thing. And to be able to exercise bold faith in the world we live in, a world that's falling apart. And remember, bold faith stands on the shoulders of quiet trust. That we are never going to really exercise bold faith and do great things for God unless we have a real true trust in God. And so therefore, great faith stands on the shoulders of a quiet trust in God. And I believe over time, this has not been for naught. I believe over the last 40 or 50 years since Brother Bam has been taken off the scene, I believe God's allowed us to be able to see that what His Word actually taught was true, that the principles of Scripture are right, 
And what that prophet brought truly was of God. And it prepares us not only to be able to live in this world, but prepares us also to travel into that world and fit in over there. You're not being conditioned and taught to fit in over here. As a matter of fact, we're doing the contrary. We are being conditioned and taught to fit in in that kingdom over there. And by faith, we believe that that kingdom, that dimension exists. How many would agree? These are all things I've said to you before. But I want you to understand and know and believe for a certainty that God is watching over you and he's wanting to make sure that you get there, that you get there because he watches over you. Now, I just, I just would like to find a particular quote here. He says, when I hear these young fellows, he said, testifying of their faith that's centered on Christ. And this is Brother Ram in 1964. He says, and I'm getting old. One day, I've got to quit. I've got to go home. I've got to cross over the other side. Brother Ram considered himself old uh, when he crossed the line of 50 because that's an Indian tradition in our country. And he said, that's the way that, that's the way that life is laid out. The way that life is laid out is that there's a young generation that come to this earth and they're influenced for the kingdom of God. They experience, most of them experience a new birth back in their early years. And then they become functional. God empowers them to, to minister, to live, to marry, to have children and families and influence those families when they're young. And he says, and then they get older. And as they get older, he said, that's the way life is laid out. He said, then eventually I'll pass on. Before I pass on, I would want to make sure that I influenced everyone in my family tree towards the kingdom of God. How many can say amen? This is not going to happen automatically. This is not going to happen just because your, uh, your last name is such and such. It's going to happen because somebody who's in that chain of the family influences the younger generation coming on in the right way. And he said that's the way that life is laid out, that one generation will move up, father and mother, and they raise their little ones and see them marry and grandchildren come along, and after a while down goes daddy and mother to the dust, and then by that time children is then ready to again for grandchildren, and down they go. That's the way life is laid out. You're not going to reverse it. You're not going to change it. That's the way life is laid out. So the right time to be an influence is right now. And the right time to take the things that you learn and apply them is right now. How many believe that? The right time to do those things is right now because that's what, uh, that's what God has put you on the earth for. Now, Brother Bannon makes a statement here. He says, maybe the devil has got you caught out somewhere and give you a disease or a sickness or something and you're backslid. But remember, he said, he climbed the ramparts of glory and he's setting on high and his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. He is from everlasting to everlasting, and he steps up and he watches you. He sees where you're at. Do you believe that today? That God sees you and he knows where you're at? And he knows how concerned each one of us are about it. And he knows your interest in him and your interest in the kingdom. And where your heart is, God knows that. He watches that. And so he watches over his word. Brother Branham goes on to say and adds this to that. He says, you must remember that God is watching you every hour and he watches you when you're asleep. Now, I think the reason that people do these things and the things that they, uh, they do uh, sinfully is because they're not conscious of the presence of God. But it, my goodness, it's true that God watches you even when you're asleep. Now, let me give you an example of that, one that pertains to all of us. 
<clears throat> there is a doctor, uh, Dr. Mulagari is his name. He's an Indian doctor, and he happens to work in a hospital in Greenville, South Carolina. And back last week, last Saturday morning, when Sister Carol Headley woke up in her bed, she realized that some, the only thing that she knew was that something was seriously wrong with her. And she was in the process of undergoing a stroke. And she has a call button with her that alerts it. It's wired directly to the nurse in the facility where she lives. She lives in a house in a community. It's a community for elderly folks. And uh, they have nurses on staff and they have different levels of care. It's really nice it's a, if you've ever been. It's really nice there. But Sister Carol has a call button. And when she woke up, she realized that something was not right. This is about 4 o'clock in the morning. And she knew that something was going to have to happen here because she could not move. Uh, she couldn't function very well at all. And she had her call button with her. I think she wears it around her neck. And she reached up and pressed the button. That's all she did. Now, you and I were asleep. Saturday morning, around 4 o'clock in the morning, and none of us were praying for Sister Carol. None of us knew she was in distress at all. And a nurse came to her, and because that nurse works at this facility where several older people are, uh, this nurse knew exactly what Sister Carol was going through. And she tried to communicate with Sister Carol. She couldn't talk. She couldn't respond. Uh, she knew she was having a stroke. She correctly diagnosed it, and she called 911 immediately, and they sent an ambulance, put her in the ambulance, and took her off. They were trying to get her into that golden hour, you know, treated in that golden hour so that she would have maximum recovery from the effects of the stroke. But, of course, when somebody wakes up in the middle of a stroke, they don't know how long really they've been suffering the effects of that. And so it's a little worse when, when that happens. Nonetheless, they brought her in and they triaged her very quickly and they looked at her and they realized, okay, they did all the necessary scans. But Jonathan would know better all the details of what, what happened there. And they gave her a quick work over and they looked at it and they said, all right, we need to bring the neurologist in here. And, and they brought him in. This is this Dr. Muligari. Young man. Saw his picture. I heard him speak on, online. I looked at his profile online. And he came in and he looked at Sister Carol and he said, yes, she's had a stroke. And he looked at all the, all the factors there. He looked at the scans. And Sister April interpreted all those scans for me so that uh, all the classic symptoms of her kind of stroke uh, were on the, uh, showing up there. And the doctor knew this is exactly what was going to happen. And she needed to have intervention. She needed to have some surgery done to remove that clot to be able to put blood back flowing in her brain again. Otherwise, there's permanent damage that's done. So six, by now it's 6 o'clock in the morning. By the way, none of us are up and praying for Sister Carol on that Saturday morning at 6 a.m. But the doctor calls up the team of surgeons, and they, uh, they're, they're alerted as to what they need to do now to be able to remove that from Sister Carol's brain and be able to give her the right kind of blood thinners and so forth to get blood moving back where it's supposed to be. And uh, <clears throat> during that time, uh, the, uh, the, the team of surgeons who were looking at this, they were saying, you know what? This is too far advanced. This is too big of a deal. There's no way we're going to do it. She just had a heart attack. She's 85 years old. She's got symptoms here that tell us that this is probably not going to be the best course of action. She'll probably lose her life if we go, uh, we go in there and we start to do some surgery and removal of things in there. Probably not going to make it. So they made a decision. They decided, no, we're not going to do it. This Dr. Muligari, he looked at these scans again. He went back to the drawing table. He went back and looked at everything. And he called up that team again, and he brought them in. 
And he began to advocate on behalf of Sister Carol. And he convinced them that this would actually be the very best thing that could happen to her is if you went in and did this. And he explained to them the reasons why. And they were in sort of a debate. And I understand that doctors do this occasionally when they're looking at the best treatment plan for a patient, especially someone in emergency and in distress. And they were debating back and forth. And these team, team of doctor specialists didn't want to do it. And Dr. Muligari, he was there as an advocate on behalf of Sister Carol. And you know what? He never knew Sister Carol. He never had met her before. None of us were praying for Sister Carol at that particular point in time. But God allows somebody to be there, to be watching over her, and advocate for her, and intercede for her, and pressing for her to get this procedure done. He finally convinced those surgeons to go ahead and do it. They did, and they allowed, they got the blood flowing back uh, uh, the way that it should. And uh, Sister Carol uh, made it through that, that particular morning, and was, you know, uh, she was doing well on that particular weekend. She had a couple of setbacks. But ye- uh, yesterday, or Friday, uh, Sister Carol walked 40 feet with a walker down her hallway. She still can't talk. She still can't swallow. And yet, they were asking, the nurses were asking, and, the, and the, uh, the physical therapists were asking the family, you know, what kind of a person is she? Is she a sedentary type person? And does she sit in a wheelchair and lay around all day? They said, no, that's not this woman at all. She's up and doing and going, and we got to strap her down, really, to hold her down. And they said, well, hey, let's get her going. And Sister Carol, all that memory just kind of kicked back in, and she gets the walker, and she's going down the hallway and coming back and did it twice on, on, on this past Friday. You know what that says to me? That God's watching over you even when you're asleep. None of us are praying. None of us are interceding for Sister Carol. None of us are asking God to help her out in a time of trouble. We didn't even know there was a time of trouble until you got a text or an email from me or someone else saying that, you know, there was a problem and Sister Carol's in the hospital. None of us really knew. But you know what? The great thing about this whole thing is that We've got somebody watching over us even when we don't know what's wrong. We don't even know what's taking place. But you've got somebody who cares about you enough that he watches over you when everybody else is asleep and is able to anoint somebody like this doctor to stand there and say, no, let's operate, let's operate, let's operate, when everybody else around him wants to not operate. He's still pushing the envelope and saying, no, we need to do it. We need to do it. And, you know, I mean, obviously we don't know what would have happened if they didn't do it. But you know what? They did do it. And I say that that means this to me, that it's not Sister Carol's time yet. But God's got an appointed time for every one of us. And he wanted her to be around a little longer at least. And so he'll anoint, a, uh, he, he'll anoint a doctor or he'll anoint somebody to intercede and to advocate on behalf of someone like Sister Carol, who he doesn't know. And he probably will never see her again. And he's got nobody around, no family is there, nobody around to encourage him to do that. But he just somehow in his heart, he just knows this is the right thing to do. And he presses for it, and he gets his way, and, and Sister Carol is, is now up walking up and down the halls and, and uh, on her way to recovery. And they're thinking about moving her out and going to uh, therapy and so forth, going to another place where she can have the kind of therapy that she needs. He watches over us even when we're asleep. He watches over us through the good times. And He watches over us in the bad times. How many would agree? He watches over us during all of the, all of the, all of the different phases of life that we go through. And even though, like Brother Branham said, that this is a, you know, the kind of stage of life that we have. This is the kind of, the way that life is set up. 
He said, even though that's the way that it is, he says, we still have a God who cares about us and watches over us and makes sure he's committed to making sure that we get from where we are to where we need to be because that's what predestination actually means. And it's not because we deserve it necessarily. Come on, somebody say amen. I believe that it's because of his grace that God treats us that way. That God assigns a watcher and angels over us who watch us from the very beginning of life all the way to the time when our card is called off the rack and we're taken from this side over in the glory. I believe that we have watchers over us. I believe we have those that care about us and all we go through. And I believe in this life there are some bad things that happen to good people. And things that happen to children and children's lives that, you know what, they're really not responsible for. Part of it has to do with the, with the lifestyle of parents uh, over which children have absolutely no control. But children are imprinted, they're affected by the dysfunctionality of their, of their parents that they have. And some people, you know, have, have two and three and four uh, sets of parents here. I remember years ago traveling in the, in the nation of Russia, and I just want to read you just a little, uh, just a little uh, passage here. And I remember traveling in, in Russia with Brother Lonnie, and we were, we were dealing with people and talking with pastors about marriage situations over there. And um, it, it was just, it was not like anything that I had ever heard because uh, they had, the, the, the Russian government had attempted to take God out of the Communist Manifesto about 90 years prior to us being there. When, uh, when communism, uh, you know, was, was uh, taking root in, in uh, the Russian countries there, they had written the Communist Manifesto. And one of those tenets in that manifesto was that there is no higher power, there is no God. And as a result of that, they took God out of all of the normal functions uh, in day-to-day life. There was no mention of God. There was no mention of God in schools. There was no prayer before anything. There was no sense of morality or right and wrong. If you wanted to get married, you paid five rubles and got a license, and you went and got married. If you wanted to get a divorce, no difference. You just paid five rubles and had the judge stamp it, and off you go, and you could get a divorce. There was no sense of whether this was right or wrong. Now, at the time, it seemed right to communist leaders that that's the way that things should be. But now we're living in a time where multiple generations have arisen and lived and had families and so forth. And now, uh, we, you know, we find the, the, the condition as it is in a nation like Russia today where they left God out and thought they could handle it on their own. We can live, we can function, we can be successful and powerful and wealthy without God. We don't need God. But as a result of that, when you look at the fabric of their own society... And how things really are. You see the effect of leaving God out. We're in a position in America where, where, we, where we are minimizing the effect of the scripture. Minimizing the effect of godliness in our culture, right? We're allowing television to influence a, a generation very quickly. We're allowing social media to influence a generation very quickly. But it, it's not as overt as a communist manifesto. But we, we now have the evidence of what it's like to live in a nation like that after years of leaving God out. This was a testimony given by a man who was a Christian in Russia, and he wrote this, and this was on the subject of marriage. And he said, this man who works in the Kremlin, he said, the problem is, he said, we have no living examples to look up to in terms of marriage. In fact, he said, there's nothing to look to except what's in the Bible if you have one. 
He said, it's very difficult to create your own family now because there are no behavioral models. It would be great to find a family that you could give, that could give us some idea of how to make marriage work well. This is not to be found in our homes. My dad had four marriages and my mom has been married twice. So she said, the problem is, if you want to establish a Christian family in your household, there's no one to look to. There's nobody around who you can say, ah, that's the kind of marriage that I'd like to emulate. That's the kind of marriage I'd like to have. Or that's the kind of family that I would like to have. As a result, not only in Russia, but in, in Spain now, for instance, seven out of every ten marriages fail in a nation of Spain. Seven out of every ten marriages fail. We're doing much better. We're at about five out of ten. Let me ask you a question here. Who runs marriage anyway? Who's in charge? Nobody's asked you that question before, have they? We know, as Christians, we know from the Scripture that God came up with the idea. He instituted it back in Genesis chapter 1, right? But who's in charge today? Who runs I mean, I was thinking about this. I was looking around our neighborhood. We have a lovely little neighborhood that we have up in, up in Virginia. And uh, we, we have four or five families that have children or have raised children uh, in, our, in our neighborhood there. And some of them are grown. Some of them are still young. Some of them are actually newborn. And uh, none of them are in the message. None of them uh, are, believe what we believe. But yet they all still, uh, they all still have marriage and they raise children and they have nice homes and they educated their children and one way or another and you know they still have all of that and they're not guided by the principles that we talk about they don't come to this church and they don't you know they're not they're not influenced by the message at all but yet they're still they're still committed they're still functioning families i mean as far as i can tell they still have all the trappings of a family there and you know what i i, I believe that I believe that I believe this is true, that the best way for you to influence your family is biblically. Are you with me still? I'm not going to be much longer. But the best way to influence your family is by the Christian principles and traditions and, and the scripture and the message and all of that that gives us the guidelines for, for knowing how to live in this world. And goodness knows we, we, we need it in this world because we're not supported by any other entity really except Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever in what we believe and how we live, right? So therefore, as a result of that, uh, the best way to live is this way. And I, I believe that there are people in this world, because we still live in the kind of nation that we live in, who are blessed because they respect the commitments and vows they've made in the same way that you remember King Abimelech was willing to not commit a sin by taking Sarah, until he was married to her. And when he found out that that woman was another man's wife, he backed off. And God said, because of your integrity, and the integrity being at least your basic respect for the guidelines that God has laid down. Even if you're not a Jew, even if you're not a believer. 
Somebody who at least has respect to the vows and the commitments of marriage and the boundaries that family should operate in. Hey, listen, God will honor that family just because they honor the sanctity of marriage. Even if they're not believers. Like, like Abimelech was not a, he was not a Jew. He was not a believer. But yet he's in a position where he can have a choice as to whether to violate God's word or not. And he chooses not to. And God honors that. I believe in the same way there are people in in this world and people who we should, to me, we should take on as an influence in our lives and whatever way we can to influence people towards the kingdom. But I will tell you what, when they live and honor God's word and respect the boundaries that God's laid down, somehow or another there's a blessing in store for those people. It's just like Naaman going to the River Jordan there and dipping in the waters just because the prophet told him. Right? Right? He's not a believer. He's not a Jew. But he's just operating in obedience of God's word. And because he operates in obedience to that, God honors him and God heals him and brings him forth clean because he did it. The prophet told him to do it. And he does it in obedience to that. And God honors that. There's nobody who comes to your door and say, hey, how's your marriage going? Right? We're, we're, we're married by the preacher and we also have to register with the town or the county and have a, have a marriage certificate. And that marriage certificate's pretty important. You know, if you want to, uh, like if, if you're doing an, an inheritance or whatever else, for different reasons you have to prove that you're married and you produce a marriage certificate, that's pretty important. Right? Just like your birth certificate and your diploma, those things are important. Uh, to have. But, you know, nobody's come to our house and said, we've been married now 36 years and nobody's come to our house and say, hey, how's it going? We signed a document. We gave you permission years ago, remember? And uh, we're just here to check and see how things are going. Listen, there's much, much more stringent measures taking over this virus than there is over your marriage. I had to line up to go see Sister Carol uh, in the hospital last Monday. And uh, when I went in, uh, you know, they have all these procedures and security and everyone wearing, you know, the, the mask and so forth. And they're shooting me in the head with the temperature thing. And... Uh, they're saying, uh, what are you here for? Well, I'm here to see a member of my congregation. Oh, your clergy. Yeah. Maybe the clergy badge gives it away. I have a big clergy badge that I wear. It gets me through lots of closed doors. It's great. And uh, I, if I need to, I'll even turn my collar around. Hey, it doesn't matter. But I, if somebody's in here, I want to get in and see it. Now, I've never done that. Don't, don't repeat that. <laughs> Lucas, cut that out of the sermon. And so they, they, this woman came along, oh, you're, you're clergy, you're here to see your congregation. Yeah, somebody's had a heart attack and I'm in here to, to see them, they're up in ICU. And uh, so, she, oh, okay, you come over here. So they brought me over here and you wear a yellow bracelet. Everybody else has a white one, you wear a yellow one. Oh, okay, great. Does that mean that I don't have the lineup? Because I'm looking at this lineup that I don't see the end of. And these are the dreaded COVID police, who sister, uh, who's different ones refer to. And, and they're, you know, they, you have the line up six feet apart. And you go down this long hallway, and there's no end. I can't see the end of, in the line. And, and they said to me, oh, you wear the yellow bracelet. And I was just going to say, so I can go in now? And they said, no, just go down that hall and get to the end of the line and just wait there. So what's the advantage of the yellow bracelet? There is no advantage to the yellow bracelet. But they made me feel special because I was wearing a yellow bracelet. 
So I get in and, and uh, you know, I'm able to spend a little bit of time with Sister Carol in there and, and to do that. But I, I'm simply saying this, that there's more precautions and there's more follow-up and there's more concern over that than there is about your marriage and how it's going. There's more offers to help with your driver's license than there is for your marriage. There is more offers for your income. There's more, uh, there's more uh, concessions made for you in different parts of life uh, for your health and for your uh, voting and for everything else. But nobody has ever come to our door and say, how's your marriage? How would you rate your marriage on a scale of 1 to 10? And yet it's the building block of our society. It, it's financially, it, it, it makes people better. It makes families better. Educationally, it makes families better. No matter how you educate your children, it's better when you have a husband and wife who's, you know, living with those children. Socially, morally, in every way, spiritually, in every way, it's better for a family when there's a mother and a father that are present. And when I say present, they're, they're there, they're involved, they're in your face, they're helping raise kids, they're, they're working together and doing things as a family. It, it, is, it is the way to improve a society. It's the way to improve a culture. And nobody ever comes and checks. Nobody ever says, how's it going? And a lot of it is because the view of marriage is changing. As a matter of fact, let me read you one more statement here. To mention the subject of marriage and family, among scholars and intellectuals today, and among many leaders, To its many and vocal critics, marriage is considered legalized slavery and anti-feminist and a receding institution whose dying grip on society cannot come soon enough. In the past, these doctors have said marriage dominated not because it really was the best way to live for everyone, but because it was uncontested. They conceded that it was the way that everybody did things. Not because, they, in their opinion, it was the better way, but now because, it, or back then, it was uncontested. Many of these experts are women who believe that now, well, hey, it's not right to put women in this particular role or that particular role. So, in other words, all I'm doing is I'm documenting for you the fact Like Brother Branham said, and he talked about uh, Moses' mother and all the different ones there. They, They were living in a society that was hostile to them having children, hostile to them having a regular family life. And they were living in that, but they had to, they, they had to make the most of it because that's where God had placed them. And they did it, and they did it successfully because that's where God had placed them. And he said, I'd never leave you nor forsake you. All right, now what has that got to do with the measurements of the temple and the law of the house? Well, let me just paraphrase this and say this. And upon this, I'll close and I'll close my Bible. And just to say this. When you go back and you read in the book of Ezekiel, and you start at 40, and you look at all the different things that Ezekiel said about the temple, and it had to be this length, and the doors had to be this wide, and the ceilings had to be this height, and all the rest. And God was giving uh, Ezekiel this vision, not only for the temple that they would worship in, but he was talking about the dimensions or the, the way that God would want to inhabit temples in the future. All right? So there's a prophetic component, a big prophetic component, uh, to this whole description that God gives Ezekiel. Stay with me now just for a moment here, and then we'll, we'll close. I promise you. 
The closing will take 25 minutes or so, 30 minutes. No, I'm only kidding. And, and, and it's very detailed. It's very specific. There's this many cubits and that many cubits and a hand breadth. And interesting, it, it, he describes it and he says, this will be a cubit and a hand breadth and a cubit and a hand breadth and six cubits and a hand breadth. A hand breadth is this. It, it's, it's this distance right here. In this, in this particular kind of measurement is this right here. And if you take six of these, it will, unless your arm is strangely made... The hand breath, and you can line up six of them, and it'll take you from the tip of this finger to your elbow, which is a cubit. So six hand breaths will make up a cubit. And in the measurements there, and without going into all the specific scriptures, you can look at them yourself. In the, the scriptures there, it was, it was measured that when you build a temple, you will make it six cubits or six hand breaths. And the number six is referenced many times there. And I believe this, that six is the number of man. How many know their numerology, right? When was Adam made? On the sixth day, right? And I believe what Ezekiel was given to say, I believe what God inspired him to say, and without going into a whole lot of detail and a whole lot of types, just to say this, that when it comes to the law of the house, and in the Bible there, we know it means the house of God, but the word in the Hebrew is the word for a common dwelling house where a family lived. So the law of the temple, God wanted it made this way. But he was also referencing the law of where common people lived. That it would be, the doorway would be six cubits, and this would be six hand breaths, and, and it's repeated over and over again. And I believe this with all my heart. That if six is a, the number of man, I, I, I know that it is incumbent upon us as fathers and mothers to do everything we possibly can as men and women, moms and dads, grandparents and grandparents, grandmothers, grand, grandfathers, to be able to build and to shape and to do everything we can to develop our children and to instill in them a patriotism for the kingdom of God, a love for the things of God, I believe it's important for us to do that. I, I, I believe that it, it's important for us as, as parents, and Deuteronomy teaches us this, that we shape our children, that we sharpen them or diligently teach them. And then like arrows in the hands of a mighty hunter, we let the arrows go. So we shape, sharpen, and shoot when it comes to our children. We do all three of those things, even though we don't want to we don't want to let our children go, but if, if arrows are the are, are, are children in the hands of a mighty hunter, let me tell you, the, the arrows are the children and the, and the, uh, the, the hunter is the, is the father, is typified as a father. And those arrows are, are those kids that are going to be sent off into the world, sent off into the world that they're going to develop for themselves. My boys, they, I didn't want to shoot my boys. I, I, I should be careful what I say, but I didn't want to shoot them away. I didn't want them to leave the house. But eventually time came where they eventually left the house, and I had to let go of that string and let them go. It's interesting that most of my boys on their way out, leaving the arrow, they reached back and said, how about $20 for gas before I go? <laughs> but I would just say this, that as human beings, we want to develop our house the best way we possibly can. But what makes our house different than another house? Like I said, our house different than uh, my neighbor's house. What, what makes our, 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 our life different than other people's lives? I believe it's this, that 
that if six is that number of men, if they were to build a temple and have six cubits here and six handbreadths there, they knew that there was another dimension to this tabernacle or this building that only God could provide. A seventh measure, if you like. A seventh part. And I believe that that seventh part is an anointing that God gives. And the difference between our household and another one, and your business and another one, is that when we include God in it, when we embrace God in it, and in the raising of your family, or in your marriage, or whatever else, we should do as human beings all that we can possibly do. We can build the best we possibly can, make the best house, and do the best thing with your money, and be a best steward as you possibly can. But you know what? All of it is going to fall and collapse unless God anoints it with another part. When God adds His part and He breathes upon that and anoints that, it becomes something then that reflects His character and reflects that kingdom. And to me, that's the greatest part, is that we should live our lives in a way that we're always able to entertain the presence of the Holy Spirit in our household, in our business, in our taxes, in our raising our children, in our uh, influencing of our grandchildren. Whatever it is that God, wherever you are in life, you, we, what we need to have is that, anoint, that anointing that makes the difference. In our services here, we're not really doing that much different, which a lot of Protestant uh, churches do. Uh, I mean, they have the King James Bible, and they read, and they stand, they sit, and they sing, and many times they sing the same songs over and over again. What's the difference? The difference is the presence of Almighty God that anoints that Word and makes it real to us, because we have a Word that even though it comes from the same King James Bible, it contains rapturing faith, and God puts something in it. It's not our knowledge, and it's not our, uh, it's not our occupancy that makes a difference. It's not our level of attention that makes a difference, or our discipline. It's His anointing that makes a difference. And we should build, and we should help other people build in other nations, and we should uh, print the books and send them out and do all of that. But it means nothing if he doesn't anoint it and bring that other part. And that's what we have to teach our children to do. That is not just because you're in a church, or not because you carry a Bible around with you, or you have a Bible app on your phone that makes you good in the eyes of God. And let me tell you, we need to do what we need to do. We need to do our part. We need to work hard at being the best we possibly can, and being real testimony testimonies of the kingdom of God. We need to do whatever we can. Because a lot of times we blame God for our indifference. We blame God for our laziness. We blame God for things that we can change ourselves. Come on, isn't that true? There's a lot of times we'll, we'll complain even in prayer over things that we could possibly change ourselves. I believe we should do all that we possibly can to make the changes that we know. The things that we're taught, I believe we should apply them in our lives. But I will tell you something, it all is different when He comes and breathes upon your efforts, breathes upon your family, breathes upon your checkbook, and He breathes upon your assembly. He anoints it. Then it now becomes something that God is actually using. It becomes something that God expresses himself through. And that should be our goal, because we are made in the image of God. Let's stand to our feet. Let's stop there. The law of the house is that we're going to do it God's way. We're going to build it according to the specs and the measurements that God has laid down. And in the building of the temple that Ezekiel saw, there was lots and lots of specks, lots and lots of different uh, things that were there that uh, really made the difference. Let me leave you with the testimony of Henry Hines. That's right, Hines 57. Every time you pick up a Hines 57, remember the founder, Henry Hines. When his will was read and his words were heard, 
This is what he wrote in his will. Looking forward to the time when my earthly career will end, our desire to set forth at the very beginning of this will is the most important item in it. The very first thing is a confession of my faith in Christ. I also desire to bear witness to the fact that throughout my life, and in which there were unusual joys and sorrows, I have been wonderfully sustained by my faith in God through Jesus Christ. This legacy was left me by my consecrated mother, a woman of strong faith, and to it I attribute any success that I have obtained. For those of you that are in the position of being a mother and a, a, a godly influence in your family like that, hey, you may, not, you may think it's unapplauded. You may think it's unacknowledged. But I will tell you something. It is God-ordained. And it is worth pursuing with all of your heart. And I will tell you something, that God sees every tear that's shed and God knows every frustration that you feel because you know what? I just read, he's watching over you even when you sleep. Even when you sleep. I wonder could we sing that uh, little chorus uh, this morning here just just as we close here. Um, think about his love, think about his goodness. The key of F there, let's sing it together. Let's just worship him this morning for a little while. Think about his love. Think about his goodness. Oh, think about his grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, so great is the measure of our Father's love. Yes, great is the measure of of our Father's love. Sing it again now. Think about His love. Think about His goodness. Think about His grace that's brought us through. For as high as the heavens above, the measure of our Father's love. Great is the measure of, of our Father's love. Father, Father in heaven, we love you. We lift your name in all the earth. What key are you in there? Father in heaven, we love you. We lift your name in all the earth. May your kingdom be established. Declare your mighty word. Blessed be the Lord.
the Lord. Brother Aaron, Brother Joe, would you come on over for a second here? Aaron, would you come? I need two mothers. Brother Jonathan, would you come? And Ben, would you come on here if you don't mind? Two, four, five, six, seven. Sister Connie tomorrow has to go for a biopsy. And the doctor saw something on a scan and uh, they felt like this was the next step for her and they're concerned about it and they want to bring her in for a biopsy. Now, I would like to pray for Sister Connie, and she's been through a lot, and I believe that God is a healer today the same as he ever was. So I've asked these brothers to come and just lay hands, if you don't mind, on her and on Brother Troy as well, and let's just pray that God will just take this situation in hand and watch over her and um, be the healer, and by his stripes you are healed. Let's just pray together. You brothers, come on in. Let's just, let's just join our hearts. I want you all to pray. Heavenly Father, we anoint Sister Connie today in prayer with oil because this is exactly what you told us to do. You told us, Lord, to join our hearts together and call for the elders of the church and to pray. And the sins, Lord, would be forgiven. And diseases would be healed. Miracles would take place. And Father God, we believe we are the children of God today. Not we will be, but we believe we are the sons and daughters of God. And Lord, one of your daughters is in need today. And in the name of Jesus, may, Lord, she be forgiven of everything that would hinder the moving of the Holy Spirit. Lord, may you touch her. May you heal her. Lord, may you take care of this affliction that she has. And Lord, we thank you for the doctors and the procedures and everything else. But Lord, we believe you are a greater physician today than anyone on this earth. And so, Lord, we join our hearts together. We join our voices together now and pray in the name of Jesus that you would just undertake for Sister Connie. Take away all fear, Lord. Take away all doubt. And may your presence, Lord, just be felt in her life. Touch her, Lord, I pray. We commit her to you in confidence. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. And amen. And all the bride said, amen. Thank you, brothers. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, Jesus is here. Jesus is here. All things are possible because Jesus is here. Oh, Jesus is here Jesus is here and all things are possible for Jesus is here
in the morning when I when I rise in the morning.
all the time. God is good. His word is true. And I will tell you something. He loves you even more than you love him. And he wants to see you blessed even more than what we want to be blessed. I believe it's true. Let's sing what you're playing. Oh, my soul, oh, my soul, worship His holy name. Sing like never before, oh, my soul, I'll worship Your holy name. Do we need to bring it up just a bit? sun comes up, it's a new, it's time to sing your song again, whatever may pass, and whatever lies before me, let Sing it now. Oh, yes. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Oh, my soul. Worship His holy name. Sing like never before. Oh, my soul. I'll worship Your holy this. You're rich in love and you're slow to anger. Your name is great. Is kind for all your goodness. I will keep on chorus again now. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, oh my soul, I worship His holy name, and sing like Still my 
people. He said, you know, in, in our world, we look at what we can see, but open your eyes. There's a whole other dimension where there's a battle that, that rages that goes on. And, and if you didn't have the Holy Ghost, you'd be intimidated by that. But I say greater is he that's in us than he that's in this world. And so really, we have nothing to fear. We should appeal to God. We should look to God. As a matter of fact, let's bow our heads together. If you have a need today, raise your hand before him. Whatever your need is, it doesn't matter that anybody else knows. Just lift your hand to him. Heavenly Father, we rise up now in faith and believe, Lord, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, Lord. You are strong on behalf of your people, Lord. You have even described your people as an invincible army. And Father God, we love you today. We want to serve you your way, Lord. We believe that nothing can stop us, Lord. No power on this earth, no power below the earth, no force of darkness can stop the people of God. And Lord, we just claim our rights and privileges as sons and daughters of God. Not because of what we have done, Lord, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we rise up above our doubts and our fears and our worries about the future. And we say, Lord, be it done unto me according to thy word. Have your way, Lord, I pray. Help us to be stewards over all you place in our hand, Lord. And may, Father God, you deal with our hearts, Lord, as you dealt with Moses' mother's heart. And Lord, in the face of death and in the face of all the circumstances around her, and living in a world that was hostile to children, but yet, Lord, she stepped out in faith and put that child in the river. Lord, may we release our children into the hands of God. And Lord, believe that you have a purpose in giving us the role of mothers and fathers. And I pray your blessing upon every mother here today, Lord, every grandmother. Father, may you just enrich them, give them the strength and the boost and the encouragement that they need, Lord, because their job very often is unacknowledged. We give them to you, Lord. We pray, dear God, that you would bless our new mothers, Lord, and bless, I pray, all of our grandmothers here today from the beginning to the end. We know you to be a healer and a miracle worker, and Lord, we just commit our every concern to you, Lord. Bless Sister Connie Hughes today, Lord. I just pray that you would just do a great work in her body. And Lord, may she be completely made well. Father, we pray for those who are not here. Think of Brother Keith and Sister Sarah, Lord, and Brother Ron Spencer, and many others, Lord, who are looking to you today. Bless Sister Carol, Lord, laying in that bed today. Father, I pray you just anoint her legs, Lord. May she just recover her strength and her voice, that she might be able to sing the praises of God. I commit our people to you, Lord. I commit my family to you, Lord. And all of our days that remain upon this earth, Lord, may we live them for you and for the kingdom. We give you thanks and praise for all you have done. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah and amen. There's an army. 
should have that desire in our hearts. You are my strength when I am weak. You're my all in all. Let's sing that this morning here just before we leave. You are my strength when I am weak. You are the pleasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you a precious jewel Lord to give up I'd be a fool for you are my all in all Jesus Rising again, I bless your name. You are my all in all. When I fall down, you pick me up. When I am dry. 
said. We're going to let you go this morning. May God bless you. As I mentioned, we have opened up our playground a little bit for the kids, and we're just taking those little steps uh, as we go along, and uh, we just, we, we want to stay open. We want to stay worshiping together. So, we ask you to just to be mindful of that. As we go, let's sing that little chorus. Uh, let's sing uh, Every Praise. Let's sing that as we go this morning. May God bless you. Every praise to our God. Every word of worship. One our Lord. Every praise. Every praise is to our God. Hallelujah to our God. Oh, every praise. Say